Father, you are the great, glorious, eternal, triune God. You've always been, you always are, you forever will be God. You have no rivals that would rise to your level. You are authoritative and powerful and you do what you want. And Father, we worship you because you are God. And we want to confess to you that we are tempted to buy into uh, lies, however subtle they may be. We are inclined to, to gravitate toward that which feels good, looks good, makes us feel better. Father, we want to ask that you would expose to us your truth today and that we will cling to it by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be fortified in our faith, that we will be strengthened in our hope in Christ, and that we will be built up as soldiers in your army who are willing and able to stand firm in the gospel faith. That's our prayer this morning, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So... About 3,300 years ago, the Israelites had been delivered out of bondage in Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and they are approaching the promised land, that is, the land that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan, and the Lord commissions Moses to commission Twelve spies to go and spy out the land to see about this land. And they took a representative from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And two of the men who were chosen were Caleb and Joshua. And then there were ten other men. And they go into this land of Canaan to spy it out, to see what the nature of the land is and what the nature of the people are. And what do they find? They find a land that is... Plenty. Boy, they, they have uh, fruits and vegetables that are large and plush. As a matter of fact, they bring some of those fruits and vegetables back, and they had never seen fruits and vegetables like that before. It was such an amazing land, but also they saw fortified cities. And they saw very impressive, strong, big people that were intimidating in nature. So that when the spies come back after 40 days and they give their report to Moses and, and the people of Israel are all around and say, well, what, what was it like? Ten of the twelve spies tried to convince Moses and the people of Israel that they didn't need to go over into the promised land because they were intimidated by the people and intimidated by the cities. And Caleb, Caleb and Joshua, 
Caleb in particular for our purposes today said, wait a minute, wait a minute, who, who is it that we serve? And what have we been promised? And he stood for the glory of God and he stood for the promises of God and he had faith in what God had declared in the midst of this intimidating pressure by his peers and in, in the midst of, of what they had seen when they were over in the land. And what ends up happening God speaks to Moses and says, because of their unbelief and because of their lack of faith in my promises, none of these adults, including 10 of these spies, are going to be able to enter into that promised land. And so for 40 years, the adults die off, the children grow up, and there are only two men who were alive at that time who got to cross over. Joshua and Caleb. Check this out. 45 years after that date in which Caleb stood firm, they're crossing over into the land and Caleb is 85 years old. And you know what he says to Joshua who's bringing them over as the leader of Israel? He says, I'm ready to take that land that God has promised. He says, I'm just as strong as I was 45 years ago. I'm just as zealous for the glory of the Lord and the seizing of His promises as I was 45 years ago. Will you commission me to go take that land, Joshua? This says, you're commissioned. And he goes and he takes it. He stood firm for the glory of the Lord when he was 40, and he's standing firm for the glory of the Lord when he's 85. He's courageous for God when he's 40, and he's courageous for God when he's 85. Decade after decade after decade after decade, this man stood firm for the glory of God and the promises of God. And my question today is, where are the Caleb's today? Who are the Caleb's today? Now, I believe and I hope that we have Caleb's. I really do. I believe and I hope that we have people who are going to stand firm today and tomorrow and the next day and 45 years from now on the promises of God for the glory of God. But that's exactly what this text today in Philippians calls us to. It calls us to stand firm. It calls us to stand strong. It calls us to dig our cleats in, our, 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 our fighting cleats into the ground and say, I am not going to move off of this spot. I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm going to trust in Christ. I'm going to believe in the cross of Christ. I'm going to preach the cross of Christ. And I'm going to hope in the return of Christ. And I don't care what kind of shifting sands are around me or winds that try to blow me down or what pattern, but what the culture is saying or what Christianity is saying. I'm going to stand on the solid rock of the person and work of Jesus Christ my whole life. That's what God is calling us to in this passage today. He's calling us to, to stand firm. If you haven't taken your Bibles, open them to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The lesson for today is stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, the reality is the Philippian church is being bombarded by all kinds of, of temptations. 
all types of, of people and religious leaders and political leaders who are trying to convince these Christians to buy what they're selling. The legalists are selling the gospel plus a bunch of rules. The libertines are selling, oh, the, the, the cross is, is great. Now you can go and live however you want to live. The political conservatives are saying, hey, wait a minute. Caesar is Lord. Um, the, the, the people in the community are saying, hey, aren't you guys just a little bit too zealous about this whole Christianity thing? I mean, there are all kinds of voices and whisperers in these Christians' ears trying to say, believe this, follow that, listen to us. And Paul knows that. And he's been addressing those issues all chapter long. Philippians chapter 3. And so I want to read to you verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. He says, now brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Keep your eye on the text. He's saying, as you're being tempted to turn away to false gospels, to crumble under spiritual persecution, to be depressed by increasing problems in your life and in the church, stand firm in the Lord through imitating followers of Christ, contemplating the enemies of Christ, and anticipating eternity with Christ. That's what he's saying right there. He's saying, stand firm in the Lord. Now, now imagine, that's the big idea. The big idea is stand firm in the Lord. And that's my call on you, church. But imagine that I'm coaching my basketball team, and we're playing in the championship game, and we're going back and forth and back and forth, exchanging buckets with the opposition. And it gets down about uh, six minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden the opposition throws a full-court press on us and we turn the ball over four times in a row, and they get easy layups four times in a row, and we go down eight points. And I call a timeout, and I bring the team together. And this is what I say to them. Okay, guys, you're losing. Start winning. Okay, Warriors on three. Warriors on three. One, two, three, Warriors. What kind of strategy is that? That is not a good strategy. That is not a good plan, okay? Yeah, we want to start winning. We want to stop losing, but that's no strategy. And this is the thing. Paul doesn't just say, guys, just stand firm. Okay, go get them. That's not what he says. He says, I want to give you some strategies to stand firm. Now, he, he closes this text by saying stand firm, but everything that leads up to that are strategies in how you stand firm. 
And so he doesn't leave us without the ability to say, this is how we can turn things around. This is how we can stay fortified. This is how we can stand firm. And so this is it. Three strategies today, guys. Three strategies to stand firm in the Lord. Three strategies to stand firm in the Lord. I believe that these are critical for our day. The first is follow those who love Christ. Follow those who love Christ. He says, brothers, join in in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, he's already addressed this. If you can remember the end of chapter 2, who did Paul hold up as two great examples for us to follow? Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's exactly right. And he says, look, follow their affection Follow their love. Follow their sacrifices. Follow their loyalty to Jesus Christ. These men are worthy of honor and they they are worthy of imitation. Follow them and imitate them because they're wonderful examples. And then he comes back around at the end of this chapter and says the same thing. He says, follow those who love Jesus Christ. I love Christ. Now, some might say, well, that sounds kind of prideful to say, "Imitate, imitate me. But... Who is it that Paul is trying to imitate? Christ. He even says that to the Corinthians. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And listen, there's no no pride involved when you're not trying to to get an allegiance to yourself or trying to get self-glory. What Paul has already said multiple times, I live to magnify Christ. I live to pursue the glory of Christ. I live to honor my Savior. And so Paul's whole goal is to not magnify himself, but to magnify Christ. And he's saying, come and join me and follow me as I'm trying to follow Jesus Christ himself. There's no pride in that. There's sincerity. And so he's saying, identify people like Timothy. Identify people like Epaphroditus. Identify people like me. And so if you're... If you're one to ask the question, so how do we follow those who love Christ? Well, first of all, you've got to identify them. Identify people who love Christ. And church, I just want to, I want to speak just very personally to you in this sense. I think there are three sets of people that we can identify. We can identify people in the Bible. Like as we read through the Bible, as we read through Genesis through Revelation, and we see individuals who loved the Lord and lived for the Lord, we need to identify them. We need to identify the Abrahams who believed God and trusted God, even though it meant taking his son up to the top of that mountain where the altar was laid and trusted God in the midst of significant temptation not to trust him. We need to look at that and say, hey, this guy trusted God, I need to trust God. Well, we need to look at people like Caleb who trusted God in the midst of mounting peer pressure not to. We need to look at people like David who was full of all kinds of problems and all kinds of issues. But he says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, oh my God. We need to look at that kind of desire and say, you know what, I I identify something in that person that I want in my life. I want to desire God like that. We need to identify people like Barnabas, Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures, who knew the Scriptures so well so that when he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, he didn't reject it, he received it because his heart was primed with the revelation of the Word of God. 
And so we need to identify believers in the Bible. We need to identify believers in church history. You know, the the psalm says that one generation shall commend your praises to another generation. One generation shall commend your praises to another generation. Church, we are doing a mistake to ourselves and to our children by not commending those people in church history who stood firm for the glory of God. People like Athanasius. You ever heard of Athanasius who lived in the 300s? There was this mounting opposition against the 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 godness and the humanity of Jesus Christ within the church. Arianism was was starting to spread rapidly. And this man, Athanasius, who was a bishop in Alexandria, even though nobody else was really standing, Athanasius said, you know what? Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. He surrenders none of his godness. He surrenders none of his humanity. He is two natures in one, and I am willing to die for that fact. And church... You and I today have the privilege to understand the godness and the humanity of Christ because of men like Athanasius who stood firm for the scriptural truth that Jesus Christ is both God and man at the same time. We need to identify people like that. We need to identify men like John Huss, Bohemian priest who was certainly under the the Roman Catholic influence, but he believed in the authority of Scriptures and the authority of the Gospel. And the the church and the culture came after him so much so that they tied him to a stake and they burned him alive. And as they were burning him alive, he was reciting the Psalms and praying for those who were killing him. He stood firm to the very end. We need to think about men like Martin Luther who was also under the same oppression of this large structure called the Roman Catholic Church, which was an empire. And when they tried to get him to recant all of his sayings and all of his teachings about the gospel, the justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, he's standing before all of these leaders and he says, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. We need to look at those the faith of of women like Susanna Wesley and the uh, gospel legions of George Whitfield and George Mueller. One of my favorites is John Knox, the Scottish preacher who is trying to win his country for Christ and he's praying. And this is what he prays, give me Scotland or I die. What is he saying there? He's saying that he wants the purity of the gospel message to go forth to his people in Scotland that they may be saved from their sins and if they want, he just wants to die. That's standing firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to identify believers in the Bible, identify believers in church history, and we need to identify believers who love Christ today. We need to identify believers in our own church body. And I won't mention any names. There's no reason to either bring embarrassment or attention, but the fact is is that I, I'm around here all the time and see just about every one of you on every Sunday, and I see most of you on Wednesdays and see you throughout the week, and I identify things that I see in you that I want in me. A generous spirit. A forgiving spirit. A thankfulness. A love a genuineness, a faithfulness, no matter what, a perseverance in the midst of a life of pain. I see those kinds of things in our body, and I don't just say, huh, 
I ask you. No, I identify that reality and I say, you know what? I want some of that in my life. I want some of those characteristics in my own life. And I want to say this, church. We don't need to just look at the Caleb's and the Joshua's and the Apostle Paul's. And we don't need to just look at the John Knox's and Martin Luther's and Susanna Wesley's. We need to look all around us and see the faithfulness and the loyalty and the love and the fidelity to Jesus Christ and identify that in one another and want that for ourselves. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And so follow those who love Christ by identifying them and then Second, underneath following those who love Christ is investigate them. Like, identify them and investigate them. And what do I mean by that? Well, Paul, the words that he's talking about here by keeping your eyes on those who walk, it means to keep a close watch on. To spy out is literally what it means. To spy out those who walk according to that example. And so what do you want to do in investigating? You want to ask questions like, well, how do they live? What motivates them? What disciplines do they have in place that make them so faithful? You know, I I work a lot in the athletic realm. And I I see unsuccessful coaches. And I see successful coaches. And the more I go on the various campuses to meet with and spend time with these coaches, I can see why these coaches are unsuccessful and these coaches are very successful. Why? Because the successful coaches have disciplines in place that make them successful. They're committed to principles. They're committed to truths that that every day they wake up, they do certain things for certain reasons no matter what. And listen... When you and I are identifying faithful people who love Jesus Christ, one of the things that we need to investigate is what are the disciplines that they have set in their life that make them the person that they are? We can't just say, I see that person with a generous spirit and they give of their time, they give of their resources, they give of their money, they give of their family for the building up of the body of Christ and just say, huh, that'd be great if I had it. No. You want to investigate why do they do that. You want to investigate how do, do, how do they do that and still keep up with the rest of their life. Understand those things. And then you want to say or ask, how, how do they respond to failure? Look, I know this. There's nobody in this church who doesn't fail. But those who are worthy of imitation fell forward. They fell forward. What do I mean by that? They, they don't fail and then they get knocked down and they either don't get back up or they go backward. People who are worthy of imitation fail. They admit their failure. They confess their failure, but they get back up and they keep serving the Lord and loving the Lord and standing firm for the Lord because they understand that they're sinners and they're never going to be perfect until that day when Jesus is revealed. And so we want to see how it is that you can fall forward and fail forward rather than to fall backward stay down or go backward and so the 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 third way that that we want to follow those who love christ is to imitate them so you identify them you investigate them and you imitate them and by imitate them i simply mean love what they love hate what they hate 
do what they do. Like if, you, if you're not generous and you really want to be generous because you realize that your Savior is the ultimate generous person who left all of heaven and poured Himself out on earth so that you could have all of His riches. If you understand that Christ is generous, and that you understand that those people who are really following closely to Christ are generous people, and here you are not very generous. You're frankly kind of selfish, and you're, you're kind of stingy, and you call yourself frugal, but in reality you're greedy. And you're like, I don't really want that because I don't have a greedy God how can I become not greedy but rather generous what I need to do is spend time with people who are generous what I need to do is investigate people who are generous what I need to do is ask questions of people who are generous what I need to do is hang out with people who are generous what I need to do is follow the example that they're setting for me okay so I would really think that I would have got an amen on that you understand what I'm saying okay so so we want to identify, investigate, and imitate people who love Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Follow those who love Christ. All right. So the second strategy is what has really disturbed me this week. It's resist those who hate Christ. Resist those who hate Christ. He says, For many, not a few, but many, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, literally weeping. This is a, a verb that he uses. He says, I'm weeping as I say this. He's likely dictating it to somebody who's writing it for him, or even if he's writing it down, he's, he's saying it out loud. I, I'm weeping as I write this. Many, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So they're into destruction. And so church, what we've got to do is ask the question, who are the enemies of Christ? Who are specifically the enemies of the cross of Christ? Now notice that they're not identified here in this passage. He talks about their character, kind of talks about their lifestyle, but he doesn't identify them by name. And so I think in order to answer the question, who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, we've got to ask the question, what does the cross of Christ stand for? What does the cross of Christ represent? Like when you look at the cross... When you contemplate the cross, what are you looking at and what are you contemplating and understanding about God, about Christ, about life, about humanity? And so this is what I want to do right now. I want to open it up to the church. And I want to ask the question, what does the cross of Christ represent? What does the cross of Christ stand for? It does. It stands for the gospel which is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's elaborate on that. What does the cross of Christ then stand for, maybe in some specific ways? It does. And even on the cross, Jeremy, he says, Father, forgive them. 
In other words, what I'm doing on the cross will produce their forgiveness if they trust in what I'm doing on the cross. What else does it stand for? Love, ultimate love, is that what you said? Yes, the love of God. You know, that's the thing about the cross. The cross says that you could not be more bad than you already are, but you could not be more loved than you already are. Victory over sin, yeah, victory over sin. So so when we look at the cross and Christ says it is finished, He's not saying part of it is partially done. He's saying it's all done. It's completely done. I've removed the wrath off of sinners' lives. Okay, victory. It does. Selflessness. So Christ is humiliating Himself all the way to the most humiliating death at, at, at all possible. Good. Sacrifice. What was else? Our faithfulness. So, so, Susan, you said sacrifice, and I want to add a word in case, in case somebody else doesn't say it. Sacrifice is akin to substitution. And when we look at the cross, church, I just want to be very clear at this. What we need to see is substitution. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That, that substitution. He took our place, D.C. He, he took our place on the cross. He died a sinner's death. He absorbed the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. He substituted Himself. Absolutely. We see adoption is, is God the Father condemns God the Son so that God the Son could purchase sons and daughters from every tribe and every nation of mankind. Yes. Yes, good. That's very good, Isaiah. The cross of Christ represents how dreadfully serious and depraved human sinfulness really is. Like church, if there, if there were some things that we could do to, to really climb our way up to God and say, God, here are some things that I've done in my life and the way that I've lived that was pleasing you. I'm hoping that you'll accept me. If that was reality, oh, the cross would never be necessary. And as a matter of fact, if we could do stuff to earn God's favor, why in the world would God the Father punish God the Son in such a dreadfully terrible way? It does. It, it, it signifies the righteousness of God. God is unwilling to, to be in fellowship with sin. And so He condemns sin as a righteous judge. We could go on and on. We could, but, but church, it, it's absolutely critical for us to understand those, those drastic, what we consider drastic realities. Because this is what I want to say. Enemies of the cross of Christ 
are not really so much people who deny God or who are atheists or who might have another religion like uh, Islam or Hinduism. That's not really who Paul is addressing here. Paul is addressing people who understand there was a crucifixion, but belittle what happened at the crucifixion. Or, or, use what happened at the crucifixion to advance their personal agenda. When Paul is weeping and he's struggling emotional, emotionally to, to, to get his heart and his mind around the fact that people heard that Christ saved sinners, that Jesus died a sinner's death, that He absorbed sinners' condemnation and damnation so that if they just trust in Him and believe in all that He is and all that He did, they can be saved from their sins. They heard that message and then they walked away from it and are now using the cross of Christ to advance an agenda of their own that is not God's agenda. They either belittle the power of the cross and the sufficiency of the cross or they use it for personal gain. And this is what we have to do, church. We have to identify enemies of the cross of Christ. We have to identify them. I was reading in uh, the Together for the Gospel booklet, that I think this was 2008 or 10, when their theme was the unadjusted gospel. It's a conference that Phil and I try to go to every two years. And when the theme was the unadjusted gospel, Al Mohler preached a message that was titled something like the seven trajectories of, a, of an adjusted gospel. That is, people who take the gospel and adjust it some so that it fits what they really want. What they, what they are kind of heading towards and what, what feels good to them, what feels good to their intellect, what feels good to their heart, what feels good to their life, what makes them... And so... If you know Al Mohler, the guy's uh, pretty bright, you know, um, and so he uses language and stuff that may be just a, a little above a fifth grade level. Um, I've tried to, to alter some things. I've, I've changed some names. I've even added a couple of other trajectories, but I just want to identify some, some enemies of the cross of Christ in a larger, broader spectrum. And, and one that he mentions that we don't think about much is modernism. It really came on in the 19th and 20th century where you have people who deny the supernatural works of God. So they look at the Gospels, they look at the Bible, and they say, Jesus didn't really walk on water. He didn't really feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and five loaves. I mean, that is ridiculous. You can't, you can't package and sell that to a modern society and expect that Christianity is going to continue to exist. And, 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 and he, there might have been a man who died on the cross, but there's no way he absorbed the wrath of God and somehow there's going to be this great exchange. You can't tell me that I, I'm going to pick up a, a cell phone today and dial somebody's number from across the world and talk to them on the phone and expect me to believe that there was a man who walked on water that fed 5,000 with some loaves and a fish and somehow purchased my, my salvation on a cross. That's modernism. And church, it gets creeped in. I have friends and relatives who are modernists and they call themselves Christians. 
those who, who propel that, who, who project that and teach that kind of idea are enemies of the cross of Christ. Postmodernists. Many of you are familiar with this, but you see it a lot in Hollywood. You see it a lot in, in even um, country music and pop music. It's, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Whatever is true for you is great. Whatever is true for me is great. Mike, if you want to believe in a substitutionary atonement, and I want to believe that Jesus was just a great example, that's great for you. This is good for me. Let's just all continue to be happy. That's postmodernism. It's just saying there's no absolute truth. Moral superiority. Now, this, this is important here, church. Moral superiority, because this is what we're seeing all across various denominations. Moral superiority says that the moral conscience of today is superior to the moral conscience of the gospel. I mean, these are people who call substitutionary atonement divine child abuse. That's what they call it. Because what we see in the Bible is of a lesser moral fiber than what we have today. Brian McLaren, who's one of the leaders of this moral superiority idea, he wrote a book probably at least 10 years ago called A New Kind of Christian. Some of you have heard it, A New Kind of Christian. And listen to what Brian McLaren says. He says, Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. But what is he saying? He's saying there were these, these chaps a couple thousand years ago who were doing the very best that they could do to write down the very best understanding of what they had at that time. He's denying that God revealed Himself and that God spoke, and that they wrote it down, and that God has secured it from eternity, and that is the moral conscience that we should have, not what we have today. But you see, many denominations are going the way, well, you know, they, they kind of um, lick their finger, stick it up in the air, and see which way the wind is blowing. And whatever way the wind is blowing today, that's their moral conscience for today. Okay, listen. Church, I want you to know that our moral conscience comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand on the word of God and we stand on nothing less than the word of God. Identify, I do not know what to call this, but I'm just calling it domesticated beauty. Domesticated beauty. And, and what I mean by this is that you see it a lot in kind of an upper echelon of upper financial and social echelon of Christianity that basically says God is beautiful, His creation is beautiful, let's do away with all of the unnecessary and ugly things that we read about in the Bible. Dolores Williams is a feminist and um, someone who would subscribe to this. Listen to what she says. She has a pretty big following. I do not think we need a theory of atonement at all. I do not think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. But church, tell me you don't, you don't have relatives and friends who 
believe in God to the degree that he stands for what is beautiful and peaceful and wonderful. But if you mention the cross or if you mention hell, they do not go there because it is not palatable to them. Okay, that's a domesticated understanding of God that is inaccurate. And those folks are enemies of the cross of Christ. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is whatever works, do that. Whatever gets results, do that. Churches in our culture are eaten up with pragmatism. Pragmatism doesn't start with the the theology of the Bible, the the ministry philosophy of the Bible. It rather says, we want people's lives changed. We want people's lives to be different. We want people's lives to be better and sweeter and more faithful. And so what can we do to make people's lives better, sweeter, and more faithful? Whatever we can do to make that happen, let's make that happen. It's pragmatism. Whatever works, do that. Now, if you ask them, do you believe in the cross? Do you believe in the crucifixion? Oh, yes, we believe in the crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross, but they don't let the cross determine their philosophy of ministry. They don't let the cross determine their preaching. They don't let the cross determine their counseling. They just want to know whatever works, let's do that. And the thing is, y'all, is they're looking at stuff that is on the external. They're looking at people's outward lives, and they're not looking at people's hearts because the gospel is the only thing that can change a person's heart. And if you don't preach and teach and counsel the gospel, then you're making people twice the sons and daughters of hell than they were in the first place. Pragmatism. Materialism. We sometimes call this health, wealth, and prosperity preaching. What is the message here? God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers don't deny the cross. They don't deny the crucifixion. They just hijack the cross. And they use it to advance their agenda. Isaiah, what is Scott Kemp and his missionary team's primary concern in Africa right now? Yes. Um, and to, in, in essence, exchange their worship of ancestors to then, oh, well, maybe it's not the ancestors, maybe it's just the Holy Spirit. Or, but, but it's ultimately the view that God meant to use to show someone happy. That's exactly right. Our chief missionary is in South Africa, and his primary spiritual enemy is this materialistic gospel that says, oh, we believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he's coming back. And oh, by the way, we want to use that to make you rich, to make you wealthy, to make you healthy, to make you fulfill all of your dreams you've ever had about the house you want to live in, the car you want to drive, the vacations you want to go on, and all of that. The cross is here to serve your materialistic desires. Those people are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
any religion or Christian denomination that acknowledges that Jesus died on the cross but teaches that you must be a good person or perform religious acts or live a religious life in order to be saved is a religion or denomination that's an enemy of the cross of Christ. Anyone who teaches that the cross of Christ is a great example of sacrificial love, but they deny the substitutionary atonement is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Anyone who uses the cross of Christ to line their pockets with cash, build bigger barns for personal hoarding of resources, or advance an agenda of building the kingdom of self is most certainly an enemy of the cross of Christ. Any leader who knows the truth of the cross of Christ, but ignores it regularly in order to promote legalism, traditionalism, racism, authoritarianism, is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross are often people who claim to be saving Christianity from its impending doom. They say if Christians persist in preaching and believing that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, that miracles happen, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He really walked on water, that He fed 5,000, that the bloody cross was God's plan, that Jesus literally rose from the dead, there's only one way to heaven, then Christianity will die. It will be removed from the annals of history. It will be an afterthought. People say Christianity must be saved from itself. Anybody who says that is an enemy of the cross of Christ. And we've got to identify them because they are the most dangerous Christ-rejecting people on the earth. Okay, so we identify them and then we have to understand them. So let's just look at their, their character traits. Uh, look down at the next verse. We need to understand their loyalty. Church, look down. What is their loyalty? Their God is their what? Their belly. Their God is their belly. They're loyal to their belly. Now what is Paul getting at here? He's not saying every one of them are a group of gluttons and they're all obese and overweight because they just eat, 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 eat. That's not what he's saying. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphor for saying, you know, they, they just go for the most base and basic desires. The, the most, like, reality is the most basic and essential desire and need that, that all humans have is what? It's food. You think about a baby when a baby is born. What's a baby wanting? Food. All right? We all want food in order to live. So what, what he's saying is the most basic desires, the most basic allegiance that they have is to fulfill their own physical desires and lusts. Their God is their belly. What else does he say about them? He says understand their revelry. What do they glory in? Their shame. They glory in their shame, which means they enjoy and celebrate the things that offend God. Sexual immorality, unholiness, deception, manipulation, self-centeredness, things that offend God, they glory in, they pride themselves in, they market themselves for. They glory in things that are shameful 
And so he says, understand their loyalty. Their God is their belly. Understand their revelry. They enjoy and celebrate things that offend God. Understand their mentality. What are their minds fixed on, church? Earthly things. Understand their mentality. They are super excited and super fixed on worldly things, but not about Christ. Now, as I did some research and read some different commentaries this week, I noticed that commentators and scholars and even preachers are like, well, it's probably not the Pharisees. It's probably not the Judaizers. It's probably some other group that we're not necessarily aware of. And this is what I want to say. It, it doesn't matter what, what you're promoting. If you are an enemy of the cross of Christ, and you don't see your great need for salvation in Christ, and you belittle the power and the purpose of the cross, I can tell you, even though I don't know you, I know that you are out for the kingdom of self. I know that you're out to fulfill your own lusts and your own desires. And you're doing it, some of you are doing it through religion, and then others of you are doing it through uh, libertinism, or, or whatever the case is, or just a, a, a life of, of, of profligacy. All right, And so, because... Any religion, any pursuit that denies the cross of Christ and its power and its purpose is self-serving. The cross of Christ is the only religion that glorifies God and exalts the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the love of God. Okay. So, understand their eternity. So, so their loyalty is their belly. Their revel revelry is shameful things. Their mentality is earthly things. And because of that, church, they will spend all of eternity in complete ruin and condemnation. It says their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. They will spend eternity in complete ruin and eternal destruction. And so identify them, understand them, let me give you one more instruction to this heading. Withstand them. Withstand them. Don't hate them. Don't mock them. But resist them. And don't listen to them. And so what I mean by withstand is don't lower yourself and lower your, the fruitfulness of your life by slandering, mocking, or anything of that sort. But at the same time, don't, don't put a listening ear to them, don't promote them, and warn those who are following them. Like for instance, there's a, there's a preacher who's, I guess he's the most popular preacher in the world. He has the biggest church in the world. Okay, if you were to ask him, do you deny the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? No, I don't deny the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But if you listen to him, quote unquote, preach, he doesn't preach the cross of Christ. He doesn't talk about man's need for the cleansing of sin, for repentance from sin. He doesn't talk about the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the absolute imperative of God the Son going to the cross, paying a sinner's death and, 
and that you and I have to put ourselves under the blood of Christ. Why? Because the blood of Christ is offensive. Repentance is offensive. And so he doesn't preach it. And he also believes that Hindus and others are going to heaven because they love God, he says. Okay. What I'm saying is people like this, don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't promote them. Because you will find yourself under their sway and you will find yourself releasing a little bit of your allegiance to the cross of Christ one day, one week, one month, one year at a time. And all of a sudden, you might find yourself 20 years from now saying, you know, I don't really know that the cross of Christ was all that necessary in the first place. Take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Stand firm by identifying, understanding, and withstanding enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, let's look finally. Anticipate eternity with Christ. Anticipate eternity with Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I love how Paul is weeping. He's torn up emotionally about these people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And to elevate our thoughts and our minds and our emotions, he fixes our eyes squarely on the ascended, resurrected Lord of glory and says, He's coming back again. Let's have hope in that. Let's fix our eyes on Him and let's look to Him so that we can have encouragement in this time of difficult, uh, difficult religious um, movements. Okay, so I think basically what he's saying, church, look down at the text. He's saying embrace your present citizenship in Christ. Anticipate your future beholding of Christ and anticipate your future conformity to Christ. You see that? Embrace your present citizenship. Like, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's our primary citizenship and our primary identification. Anticipate your future beholding of Christ. Anticipate your future conformity to Christ. Like, he's just saying, elevate your minds and your hearts to that which is to come so that you will not get lost in the fray of materialism and liberalism and traditionalism and pharisaicalism and all of these other isms that you are likely to be tempted to go astray in, but fix your eyes squarely on Jesus Christ and understand who you are in Him. Understand that you're going to behold Him and that you're going to be like Him. That's exactly what He's saying here. And I was at Lowe's on Thursday getting a drill bit and I got in line to pay for it and there was a young woman, maybe 30 years old, who was in front of me and she was in a wheelchair and she had multiple deformities and she's wheeling up to pay for the tools that she's purchased. And she pulls out her little purse and counts out her money. 
to get these tools that apparently are going to help her fix something at her house. In a wheelchair, multiple deformities, willing through lows. And I just was, of course, thinking about this passage, thinking about this reality we just read. And I started praying for her silently. Like, Lord, if she doesn't have faith in you, would you give her faith in you? Would you give her hope in you? Would you give her faith? Would you give her peace in you? Because one day, Jesus Christ is going to split the clouds. He's going to return in all of His glory, in all of His perfection, in all of His wholeness. And everybody who trusts in Him and who loves Him is going to have a transformation of body and a transformation of soul so that they will know utter wholeness and utter completeness and utter, com- uh, utter perfection. And I want her to enjoy that transformation. And so I went to my journal and I wrote down, Lord, I rejoice in the fact that I won't be stuck in a sinful state of being forever. I glory that one day my sin will be a thing of the past. My selfishness, pride, self-righteousness, and jealousy will be eternally and completely gone. I will live perfectly, love perfectly, worship perfectly, celebrate Christ perfectly. I rejoice in the fact that my broken body will be exchanged for an unblemished, unbroken body forever. Joint problems, stomach problems, muscular problems will be completely and eternally gone. I will have perfect energy, perfect mental capacity, and perfect ability to worship God fully. What a glorious day that will be. Amen. And so, let's see, I think I brought, you know, I brought a book. I had Isaiah and I guess uh, probably Nathaniel um, put this rope out here, and I'm sure for an hour y'all have been wondering what this is for. <laughs> but I asked him just to bring a rope and to just put a, a little mark uh, on, on the rope. And this is not a, a picture that is unique to me. Uh, plenty of people have used it before. But say this is eternity past, and then you're born, and you live, and you die. And this is eternity future. That if we had an infinite rope, would just continue on, it would never end. Okay. What the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us in verses 20 and 21 is stop giving in to temptations to live for this little time right here. Look, look beyond that. Look to eternity. Look at the conformity to Christ that you're going to have. The revelation of Christ. The awesome experiences of everything that you do. Mountains to climb. Rivers to swim in. 
Relationships to enjoy, friendships to have, songs to sing, worship to enjoy in all perfection for eternity and eternity and eternity. So stop fixing your eyes on the things of this world. If you're tempted for your God to be your belly, if you're tempted to be swayed by earthly and worldly things, if you're tempted to say, let's back off a little bit of this cross thing because it's really offensive to a lot of people in this world. If you're tempted in that way, stop. Stop being tempted and start looking beyond your present life to the life that is coming for you. Randy Alcorn has probably written the best book on heaven other than the Bible that's ever been written. I just want to read a piece of it for you. In heaven, the barriers between redeemed human beings and God will forever be gone. To look into God's eyes will be to see what we've always longed to see. The purpose who made us for His own good pleasure. Seeing God will be like seeing everything else for the first time. Why? Because not only will we see God, He will be the lens through which we see everything else. People, ourselves, and the events of this life. What's the essence of eternal life? Well, Jesus answered it in John 17, 3 that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our primary joy in heaven will be knowing and seeing God. Every other joy will be derivative, flowing from the fountain of our relationship with God. Jonathan Edwards said, God Himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He's the highest good, the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things, but that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. In other words, when you climb a mountain in heaven, you'll enjoy it because you're going to see more of God when you climb that mountain. And when you climb that mountain, and you know if you've ever climbed a mountain, whether it's Mount Lacan in the Smokies or whether it's the top of Yosemite at, at Half Dome, there's always a peak. And at, you get to the peak, and you're like, is this it? And you look around, and it is it. And then you get to see everything else. But, but there is a little bit, just a tiny little bit of a, of a discouragement, a letdown, because you'd like to go a little higher. You'll always be going higher in heaven. There will always be sights to see that will help you understand, appreciate, and love God more and more and more. And Paul is saying, live your life right now with a view toward the revelation of Christ so that when you see Him, you will be like Him and He will bring you to where He is and you will enjoy Him forever and ever in all perfection. So church, this is my call today. Stand firm. I want to call you. Hey, you're my beloved. You're my brothers and sisters. You're my joy and crown. And I want to call you. Stand firm. Don't get off your spot. 
Dig your cleats in and don't be moved by any tradition or any religion that denies the cross work of Jesus Christ. Because I will tell you, when the clouds split and He comes, you will not regret standing firm for Him. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to ask that You would give us the strength the faith, the ability to stand firm in Jesus Christ all the days of our life until we behold Him in His glory. Amen. Isaiah, would you take this down for me? Thank you.